Wow. Man, thank you guys so much. It is like, I can't even express how big of an honor it is to have you as a church family. I just feel so blessed. And I've been looking out on, on all of you from the back and just like overwhelmed about the amazing people that I get to do life with. So thank you. And thank you for allowing me to share with you tonight. I know you didn't really have a choice, but you're here. I'm here. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to dive into the word. So um, yeah, I'm excited about what I'm going to share tonight. I, I want to talk tonight and have a conversation about the topic of mission, as Jordan mentioned. And there are a couple reasons that I really want to talk about this. But before I do, I want to say that I'm not really talking about global missions or missions trips, although those are incredibly important. And we know that it's our mandate in the Gospels to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Mission as the church's vocation. This house is really passionate about. But I want to talk tonight about mission as the church's vocation. So as the church's calling. And we know that the church is the ecclesia, the called out ones. And we're called out for a purpose. And that purpose is to be a missional presence in the absences of the world. So I want to talk about mission in that light as the church's vocation and as our vocation as believers. And there are a couple reasons I want to talk about this. One is just deeply practical, and that is that I am in seminary right now, and I'm in a mission program. So I literally think about this all the time, and I'm specifically in a program where we talk about how to do theology in kind of a postmodern, post-Christian context. And so we're asking questions like, how do we communicate the gospel to people who don't know that they need it? And how do we present the bread of life to people who don't even know that they're hungry? And so I'm thinking about this a lot, writing lots of papers. But the main reason that I want to have this conversation with you tonight is because I genuinely feel that we're in a season as a church body where we're going to be launched into a new anointing of mission. And I, I've been feeling this for a long time, and I guess I just want to kind of form some communication around this, put some language to the season that we're in, because I feel like when you don't fully understand something, it's difficult to fully live it out, even if your heart is there. And so I want to, to help us, and me as well, I've been learning this, get to this point where we can fully understand our calling as missional agents in the world, and then we can fully step into it. And I felt this, for a long time I've felt this, um, and I was planning on preaching this message for a few weeks. But a couple weeks ago, I felt this confirmed when Richard and Libby Gordon came. So God did something really big in our body, and I'll come back to that. But then last week, I felt it really confirmed. And how many of you were here last week by show of hands when Jordan talked about the Holy Spirit? Okay, so a good amount of you. That's good. For those of you who weren't here, I'm going to give a brief recap. So Jordan talked about how we, well, he encouraged us to be open and give permission to and allow the Holy Spirit to move in our lives in whichever way that he pleases. So we talked about manifestations and we talked about the glory of God coming. And it was a really beautiful moment for our church body because I feel like we entered in just as a community to a deeper level of surrender to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our midst. And I don't know how many of you are aware of this because I was not aware of this. Most of the staff were not aware of this. We need to get better on our church calendar. But last Sunday was Pentecost, actually. It was Pentecost Sunday. So it's incredibly appropriate that we talked about the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost, as a lot of you know, commemorates when the disciples and the other believers gathered in the upper room and they were waiting to see what God was going to do next after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. 
and they're waiting, and we know what happens. The Holy Spirit comes. God gives the Holy Spirit, and it's a beautiful, crazy mess, and there's all of these manifestations, and there's a sound like a rushing wind from heaven, and there's people speaking in different languages, and then, as we talked about last week, people were acting like they were drunk, and it was really crazy. And a couple of things happened as a result of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that are really important for us to catch, so I'm going to go through them. The first is right after this moment at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes, there are all of these um, Jews who had gathered from every nation, and they had come for their Jewish festival. And they're confused because everybody's acting in this crazy way. And Peter addresses this massive crowd. Now, you'll remember, Peter is the person who, just a little bit before this, had denied Jesus three times because he couldn't bring himself to testify to Jesus in front of a small crowd. He was afraid. This very same Peter in this moment is so inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit that he gets up in front of this crowd. And we read in Acts 2 this beautiful sermon that he preaches out of inspiration. It's full of wisdom. It is contextualized. He pulls in Old Testament prophecy. He pulls in all of these things so that his audience can understand what the Lord is doing in their midst. And as a result of his boldness and his his inspired speaking, 3,000 people are added to the church that day. That's massive. 3,000 people encounter the grace of God, and they come into the kingdom. So as a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the first thing that we see is that salvation occurs. People encounter the gospel. So there's this preaching of the gospel. There's salvation. That's the first thing. A little bit later on in Acts 2, we learn that the disciples, the people who are following Jesus, are so in awe of what God is doing. They're so in awe of God in their midst that they can't help but cultivate and practice that love with one another. So they begin sharing generously amongst one another. They begin encouraging one another. And this beautiful thing happens where the body of believers is strengthened. So the second thing that we see as a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that the body of believers is strengthened and this community of love and cultivating love forms. The third thing that we see, the last thing I'm going to talk about, is in Acts 3. And Peter and John are walking to the temple to worship. And they're walking to the temple gate, and they hear a lame beggar on the side of the road crying out for alms. He wants money. And how many of you know this story? They stop... And they they look at him. Well, they say, look at us. And then they stop and they say, silver and gold we have not, but what we do have we'll give to you. Now in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they help him to his feet, and this man is healed. So what we see as a third result, and and he begins praising the Lord, and it's beautiful. But we see as a third result of this man, of the, the Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is we see social action, which is redemptive in nature. It's, it's redemption. Okay, so we have these three things. One is the body of believers being strengthened, which is essential to mission, by the way. We cannot, we cannot extend ourselves in mission to the world unless we are cultivating love with one another, unless we are strengthened as a body. It's so important. But the two direct extensions of mission that we see as a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit are salvation, sharing the gospel, which leads to salvation, and social action, which leads to redemption in the world. These two things. And... I think it's so important that we just take a moment to recognize that we are living in a post-Pentecost era, okay? So we're not like the disciples in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall. The Holy Spirit already came. The Holy Spirit is here. So our job is no longer to wait to pray for the Holy Spirit to empower us. I mean, he empowers us, so we need to pray for that. But we're not waiting for him. We are walking in step with the Spirit. That is our role now. And we're walking in step with him 
on mission in the world. And we need to remember that it's the Holy Spirit that is the muscle of the mission of the church. If we did not have the Holy Spirit, we would just be playing around, honestly. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live out mission, and it's not our mission. There's this uh, quote that is so beautiful. I Honestly, I like want to make it the screensaver on my phone or plaster it on my wall or something. But it says, and I hope I don't mess this up, it isn't the church of God that has a mission in the world. It is the God of mission who has a church in the world, okay? It isn't the church of God who has a mission in the world. It is the God of mission that has a church in the world. It's so important we get that order right because otherwise it can be really intimidating to do what we're called to do, which is to be an ambassador of heaven in the world, right? So those are, that was my introduction, and (laughs) I'm going to move. Okay, so that's where we're going tonight, though. And just back to Acts 2, just to make this really, really clear, we have this missional umbrella, we have salvation, we have the gospel, which leads to salvation, and we have social acts, which lead to redemption. Those are our two extensions. What's super interesting is that the church for about the last hundred years has been in this kind of heated debate about what mission looks like. And most Christians would agree that we are called to serve the world in the name of Jesus, right? That doesn't seem too controversial. I hope we can all get that from the Bible. But there is still this debate, nonetheless, about what that actually looks like, what serving the world looks like. So we have two camps. Over here, we have a camp of people that would say that our primary goal as ambassadors of heaven is to save souls, right? We're supposed to bring the gospel. We're supposed to save souls. That's important. It's really beautiful. But they might say on this far extreme side over here that anything else is kind of stealing resources from that mission. So, for example, I know of a ministry that's primary purpose is to provide clothing to people who don't have money to buy clothing when they're going to a job interview. So they don't have nice clothes. They want to get a job. So this ministry, which is very Christian, provides clothing for them. They can go, they can get clothes, and hopefully they're presentable and can get a job. That's beautiful. This camp over here might say that that's not bad, but it's kind of a waste of resources. Does that make sense? On this side of the spectrum over here, there's a group of people who say that communicating the gospel, evangelism, and social action are so indivisible, they're so the same thing, that when we are acting out of love, when we're serving the poor, when we're healing the sick, when we're feeding those who are hungry, we are actually doing evangelism, even if we're not doing it in the name of Jesus explicitly. So that's this camp over here. That camp oftentimes gets called the, the social gospel, and there's a lot of talk about that. So we have these two things and kind of this dichotomy. Honestly, neither of these two things represents the full human experience. We have a problem here because they're both representing a one-dimensional part of the human experience. Over here, we're talking about the spiritual needs being met, salvation. Over here, we're talking about the physical needs being met, redemption. And we don't, we don't have a one-dimensional gospel, We have a gospel in which Jesus comes, and yeah, he comes to proclaim the kingdom. He comes to proclaim salvation, but he also does it in the context of serving the poor and of of speaking to social structures. He's doing this, and and he's representing what we have, which is a, a gospel in which salvation and redemption are opposite sides of the same coin. They should never be separated. So this dichotomy really needs to go, in my opinion. Yeah, seriously. Um, so we're going we're gonna to go off of that. But I also want to say um, in, in Luke 4, Jesus comes and he comes to the temple. 
and he is in Nazareth, his hometown, and it's really the beginning of his ministry. And he gets into the temple, and he's handed a scroll to read as he would do. It was customary, and he stands up to read Isaiah 61. That's the scroll that he's handed. And this is what Isaiah 61 says, and this is what Jesus, is, Jesus pronounces with his ministry. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. So even Jesus is explicitly communicating that he's come to proclaim the gospel, and he's come to do it in the context of this social action. When we experience individual redemption, it should affect our family, it should affect our neighborhood, it should affect our city, it should affect people who don't even know that they're being affected by it. It is, it is like this and like this. That's vertical, horizontal. I forgot for a second. So this is, this is what we have. So I want to kind of take a step back now and really talk about this in the context of Riverhouse specifically because it's, you know, we can talk about these Bible stories, but what does it mean for us as a community? And I, I, like I said, I believe that God is doing something here and he's inspiring us to mission here. So we always talk about in Boise as it is in heaven. That's our vision statement. I love it. It's beautiful. We've really embodied that as a community. And I know I probably don't need to say this, but in Boise as it is in heaven is not just something that's on our website. And it's not just a social media hashtag. And it's not just a bumper sticker. And it's, it's not any of those things. In Boise as it is in heaven is something that we, so our Father, who is our mandate from heaven. And it comes from the Lord's Prayer. So our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Jesus taught his disciples to pray this prayer. So we're supposed to... He, well, he desires for Boise to look like heaven, and we're supposed to pray that. We're supposed to, we're supposed to believe in that. So this phrase is really important, but if you're anything like me, I do this all the time, it can, this phrase can kind of get really ethereal. It's like up here, it's this really beautiful thing, and it's kind of floating around, and I don't really know what to do about it or how to implement it into my own life. And so I want to talk about some ways that we can really live out in Boise that is in heaven, that we can really see this come to pass and we can really receive the kingdom because we talk a lot about bringing the kingdom of heaven. We're not really bringing anything. We're receiving the kingdom of heaven and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it and to posture ourselves. So there are two ways I want to talk about and we've already addressed them. The first is through evangelism, through salvation. Now, when we talk about evangelism, I know that in the past I've gone really nervous and really um, intimidated, because evangelism is oftentimes associated with street evangelism, which, how many of you here, be honest, are a little bit intimidated by that? It's, it can be scary. You're going to go talk to a stranger that you don't know. You're going to communicate this gospel that is both simple and profound. And I think it's so important that everybody at one point in their life does that just to get out of their comfort zone, and especially if the Holy Spirit is moving you to do that, because it's a really beautiful way that God moves, definitely. I know somebody, um, actually, Jesse Oliver, how many of you know Jesse? Yeah. <laughs> Jesse Oliver is the coolest guy, but he is so gifted at this type of evangelism. I've been with him in downtown Boise, and he'll just stop, strike up a conversation with someone so naturally, and all of a sudden, they will be repenting, and they, <laughs> they're like in tears, and they're coming to church, and it's beautiful, and some people are really gifted for that, and again, I think that's a really beautiful expression of this gospel evangelism. However, I think it's important that we don't discount 
relationships and evangelism as a relational thing. And I know we've heard this before, but this really recently became something very solidified in my mind. It is so important that we don't underestimate the power of the relationships that we have with people who don't know Jesus. And I was in um, Scandinavia recently. So I was in Norway, Denmark, Sweden. It was so fun. I was just on vacation. So I was really enjoying myself. I was with Ali and my sister Liberty. And I did go there for fun, but I also went there because about a year, the most secular and the most all about these countries, the Scandinavian nations, and about how they're the most secular and the most godless nations in the world. And the book was written by this really staunch atheist, and the way he was communicating made it feel like there was no hope for them missionally, that they were too logical, they were too content, that they didn't need Jesus. And it really, really, it, it hit me very hard. I was actually, like, depressed for a few days. And I decided when I was going to go on vacation that we should go to Scandinavia. And I was going to go for fun, but I really kind of wanted to check out the spiritual culture there. It was amazing because by the grace of God, literally, we're walking down the street. We end up randomly running into this church that's a lot like River House. We end up meeting a bunch of young adults who are on staff at River House, or at this church, not River House, the River House of Norway. <laughs> it's River House, Norway. So they're on staff there. I know, we're working on it. But uh, <laughs> they're on staff there, and we end up going out to dinner with them. It was just the most beautiful divine encounter ever. I didn't even know how to wrap my mind around it. And so I'm asking all these questions of one of the, the girls who's on staff, and I was particularly interested in adults and how they come to know Jesus in that culture, because according to this book and what I've read, it's very, very hard. There's not a lot of conversion in Norway. Once you reach a certain age, once you reach the age of 20, you're not likely to convert, because there's just such a, a primacy placed on uh, logic and on success and contentment. And so I'm asking her these questions, and believe it or not, she happens to be writing her thesis statement. She's in grad school, and she's writing her thesis on conversion among Norwegian adults. So I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm ready to receive what you have for me right now. And I, I genuinely had questions. And what she explained to me was that she had interviewed 50 Norwegian adults who had converted to Christianity. And of that, 48 of them came to Christianity not as a result of a debate, not as a result of logic, which sometimes that definitely brings people to the Lord, but as a result of a long-term relationship with a Christian that they had been in for years in which the Holy Spirit and the love of that person, which was the love of the Father through that person that they didn't know, broke down their walls. And they said, I want the relationship with the divine that they have. So I was just in awe of the fact that I had actually experienced this and, and heard this. And I say all that to say that whatever the Lord wants, whichever way the Lord wants to use you for evangelism, I, would, I just encourage you to go and sit with the Lord and ask him. If you've been intimidated by evangelism before, just ask him what he wants you to do in this season, what that looks like for you. Because both of these ways are so important, and whatever way that God wants to use you is so powerful. So just interact with the Holy Spirit about that. But I think that we all have a pretty good handle on evangelism, so I kind of want to camp out for the last part of my message on this social action and redemption side over here. Because... Sometimes I think it's harder for us to understand what that means outside of going to a soup kitchen, outside of feeding people. Like, that's so important. But there's also another component to that. And that is bringing the culture of heaven to Boise, bringing the culture of heaven to earth through tangible expressions of the kingdom. So there are three things that I'm going to talk about. There's probably way more that we could go through. But there are three I'm going to talk about. And as I go through them, I'm going to give examples from 
the concept of work. So from work, from your job, from maybe some of you are in school and you're not in work, or maybe you're a full-time parent, and so that's your job. But whatever you do kind of in your day-to-day for a living, whatever your context context is, I want to talk about that because I know that we live in a work-driven culture from the time that we are a little kid, we're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so we immediately start thinking, okay, what I do is like who I am. So this is, this is important. And so we have our identity really placed in work. And so I want to talk about it from that angle and uh, hopefully just kind of set people free from what they've seen mission look like in the past and what do to see. Okay. So I'm going to just follow me on this. So the first thing that we can do to see Boise look like heaven, the first tool that we have that God has given us to see Boise look like heaven is our speech. It's our words, okay? So take a moment, please, and turn with me to Colossians 4, 5. Sometimes it's just really good to read and listen at the same time. It helps get it in your spirit. And when you're there, say something like amen or hallelujah, Hallelujah, something like that. When half of you are there, I'm going to move on. Okay. (laughs) All right, so Colossians 4, 5, this is what it says. It says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And then verse 6 says, let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know you ought to answer know how you ought to answer each person that two two sentence verse has been wrecking me lately i've read it over and over and over again and it's only two sentences but it's it's so significant there's so much in there that phrase seasoned with salt let your speech be seasoned with salt that is an idiom that literally means friendly clear and making people thirsty for truth And when I read that, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Because what happens when you eat a lot of salt? You get thirsty, right? And if you don't believe me, you can go over to Chick-fil-A tomorrow because it's closed on Sundays, as we all know. And you can get some waffle fries and you can sprinkle a bunch of salt on them and eat them. And after you're done, I guarantee you, you're going to want some Chick-fil-A lemonade. I guarantee it. Because salt makes people thirsty. And we want our speech to be seasoned with salt. We want it to be drenched with grace. And that doesn't mean that we have to be in a conversation with somebody and sprinkle in a little talk about Jesus here and there. If that's your style, great. But that's not what this is referring to. It's saying that your speech should be drenched with grace, seasoned with salt. Meaning that whether you're talking about the big sale that you're supposed to do at work and you're in the office. Or whether you're talking about the you know, the basketball game, the finals, whatever that's going on right now, or whether you're in your home and you're talking to your children about something, your speech can be drenched with grace and you can communicate the love of the gospel through your language. I really, really wish that we understood fully how powerful our words are. We've talked about this before as a community, but words really do create worlds. And for a while I was like, man, what does that mean? Like that's so beautiful that our words create worlds, but what does that actually mean? I know that God spoke the world into existence. And then I got into college and I took um, communication classes, classes all throughout college. I was a communication major. And we spent so much time talking about this theory, which is that our words really do shape our reality, that they shape the perception through which we see the world. So I'm going to explain to you how words create worlds right now. Communication theorists would say that our language is so powerful that it could literally cause a revolution. 
So think of a revolution in your head, the French Revolution or the American Revolution or whatever you want to picture. And imagine somebody sitting there dissatisfied with the way that things are currently, dissatisfied with the way that the government is being run, dissatisfied with the way that they're being treated or with the social system. And they start to formulate language around their dissatisfaction to express how they're feeling. So they choose words specifically. Then they go to their friend and they communicate this dissatisfaction using those words. And they express it. And their friend begins to learn. They begin to learn about the world through the communication that this person is using. And they begin to perceive the world in a specific way. And if that friend doesn't counteract that with a different perspective, if they accept that, learn, and then begin to resonate with it, then they'll communicate it to somebody else who will communicate it to somebody else. And eventually you have a big meeting where people are using the then you have talk about this topic. Momentum builds like a wave and then you have a revolution. This is what communication theorists say. And it really makes sense if we catch this that our words can actually create culture. It's wild. In our workplace, if our coworker is talking negatively about another coworker, about the boss or something, and we don't counteract that with a different worldview, but we allow that language to settle in and to permeate, a culture is being created. And then it builds. And in our home, in, with our kids, with our, I don't have kids, but with our, our family, <laughs> with our siblings, when we're talking about something and we're, we're communicating things in a specific way, we don't recognize how powerful our words are to create culture. It's wild. And communication theorists have literally proven this in paper after paper after paper. So I just want us to really grasp this today. Don't underestimate the power of your words in your, in your workplace, in your home, wherever you are. So that's the first one, through our speech. The second one that I want to talk about, and it kind of leads into this because about creating culture, is creativity. We can see Boise look like heaven through our creativity. And we've talked about this a lot. Pastor Jordan talks about it a lot from the pulpit. But it's really essential that we get this because... So in Genesis, in Genesis, our mandate was to steward and to create. So in Genesis 2.5, I believe it is... God is talking, and they're, they're describing the situation. God has just created the world, and then he says, but there's no one to till the ground. There was no one to till the ground. So it's almost as if it's communicating that the world wasn't complete unless humans were there to till the ground. So he, cre- he creates again. He creates man, and he creates women. And then in 2.15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So that was the purpose, to cultivate and to keep it. And I think a lot of times we start to just, like, get this idea in our head that if the fall never happened, we would have stayed in the garden and we would have just watered this one rose bush forever. And that would be our, that would be our stewardship, like our, our cultivation. Beautiful rose bush, it's getting taller. And, and I think that that's so silly because, because God knew our creative capacity when he created us. He knew what he put inside of us. And what have we created? Like, we've created cities, roller coasters that are so high. And I don't know why that came to my mind. But I love roller coasters. We've created all of these things that are so amazing. The the world is so amazing. It's full of beautiful things that humans have created. And so what we really see in this Genesis 2.5 and 2.15 mandate is that God created us to cultivate the world to add on, to innovate, to build infrastructure, not just water flowers. And obviously, we had the fall, right? So we started creating things, and we started creating things that were 
more flesh than, more, than heaven, right? And we see that. But post-resurrection and post the coming of the Holy Spirit, I'm of the opinion that our ability to create what heaven looks like on earth should be dramatically higher because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. So our creative ability should be dramatically higher. There's this philosopher that's amazing. His name is James K.A. Smith, if you ever want to look him up. And he has this quote, and it says that redemption is the reorientation and redirection of our culture-making capacities. I know that's a mouthful, but the idea is that we have culture-making capacities, redemption because of the Holy Spirit, because of the resurrection, and then we redirect our culture-making capacities to heaven. Okay, so this is what we get to participate in, in that redemptive side of things, is creating culture. And I am excited about the people in this church body who I know have the ability inside of them. They have the wisdom inside of them. They have the Holy Spirit equipping them to create culture. It's money with Azure Valley. I talked about Richard Gordon. Two weeks ago, he shared his testimony with us, and it was so beautiful. And I'm going to try to recap it as best I can. But Richard Gordon was in a grad program, and I believe it was like engineering and computer science and analytics, something that is just so outside of my paradigm. And he was in this program, and it was so difficult that almost everybody had quit, and he was considering quitting. And he one night had a dream, and in the dream, the angel of the Lord came to him, and he presented a scroll to him, and he said, this is for your thesis. And he opens up the scroll, and on the scroll is this algorithm. It's like five letters. And he closes the scroll. He wakes up in the morning, and he goes and researches this. And it leads him to write a thesis paper that was so divinely inspired, so full of wisdom, that it ends up landing him in front of this really high-security, national-level of security place in the South African government. And he is working for these people. And he's getting a, pr- a place in front of kings because of this dream that the Lord has given him. If we don't understand that that's mission, then we're really missing something. That is the creative, that is the creativity of heaven being given to somebody, the wisdom of heaven being given to somebody so that they can answer the questions of the age. That is so beautiful. So I was so inspired when he shared that. I also this week heard a story of a pastor and a church in Houston called Ecclesia. And all of you remember the flooding that happened in Houston recently, and it was awful. Well, this church, before all that happened, had developed this app, this technology, and it was somebody in the church, and they were really excited because they wanted to connect people in the church to areas of mission in their city. So whether it was at a soup kitchen or doing something, and so you could just scroll through the app and you could connect. So they'd created this, and then they're watching the news in the middle of the Houston flooding, And the news anchor is saying, we really need somebody like Google to come in and to create a technology that can connect people with the jobs that need to be done because we're overwhelmed. And the pastor's like, oh, my gosh, God has given us this technology for such a time as this. And so it's called Vomo, by the way. It's still active. It's this app that you can download. And I don't know if they have it in Boise, but you can be connected with the areas of mission in your valley. It's beautiful. So now all of these cities use this app, and they were able to participate in this amazing project of cleaning up Houston that brought a lot of people together. Yeah, it's revival. So those are two examples of ways that creativity can bring culture, but there are many more, and they're in this room, and I believe it so strongly. So I'm excited to see. I'm excited to see. My last point, and this is where I'm going to end, the third way that we bring Boise, we bring heaven to Boise, and we participate in heaven being brought to Boise is through worship. And it's really simple, especially in the context of work. 
but Ken Costa says, your workstation is your worship station. And I, when I heard that, I think I rewound the little podcast like five different times because your workstation is your worship station is not the way that oftentimes we see work. At least it's not the way that I have. I've been in jobs before, and I'm only in my 20s, and I've been in jobs before where I felt so like I was having an existential crisis because I wasn't sure. No, it sounds dramatic. It's so real. I wasn't sure what I was doing with my life, if what I was doing was meaningful. I was in a job that I didn't know if it was meaningful. And, and then I thought, okay, well, at least maybe I can share the gospel. But I think that's restrictive. There's so much more than that. And I, I finally came to the realization over a period of time with this job. And then in college, I, I ran track. And I was always practicing. And I was always in school. And I felt like all my time was being put into these endeavors, which I really liked. But I felt like they were distracting me from my purpose of mission. And so I was just, I was praying with the Lord one day, and I was like, Lord, why did, you, why did you give me these tasks? Why are you having me be here? This is a waste of my time. I should be spending this three hours that I'm at practice and this five hours I'm at class worshiping you in my room by myself, just communion with him that I'm doing something. It reminded me that whatever I do, even if it's, if it's something that I'm doing something explicitly missional or if it's something that looks like running around a track, whatever I do, if I'm doing it for the glory of God, if I recognize that my workstation is my worship station, then I really am bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. I'm participating in that. So I say that just to kind of set us free tonight from this paradigm, this restrictive paradigm that what our, our, work, our work only matters if we're doing something that's really just for the gospel. That's not true. Your workstation is your worship station. And that's really where, that's where I want to end, but I want to recognize that that component of worship is, is everything. It, it combines those two points. When we're creating culture, we're worshiping. When we're using our language, we're worshiping. Okay, so, yeah. I hope, I hope that, that you catch this missional thing that God is doing in our community because we get the privilege to be his vessels in this treasure valley, the ambassadors of heaven here. I strongly believe it. I want to end by just praying over all of us, and I'm including myself as well, because I know that I need to grow in this area. So I would love for you all to stand and just be in a posture of receiving whatever that looks like for you. And we're going to pray that the Lord just lays on grace, just lathers us with grace tonight. So God, we just thank you so much, Lord, that it's your mission that we get to partner with. God, I thank you that you're using this community in such powerful ways already, that these people are loving people in their workplace, that they're loving people at the grocery store, Lord, that they're loving people on the green belt. We thank you for that. God, but I also thank you for this season of mission that you're bringing us into. God, this greater level of anointing that you're bringing us into. And I pray that you would just bring freedom tonight for us to operate in mission the way that you would have us operate in it, Lord, that you would allow us to just step into the fullness of our identities in Christ as we're in the workplace, God, as we're in our homes, Lord, that you would bring creativity and wisdom and, and you would give us language that, that answers the questions of the day, Lord, and that you would give us language that speaks life over our environments, Father, that we would be a missional people set apart and called out by you, God. We want that, Jesus. So we thank you for what you're doing in this community, and I just pray grace upon grace upon grace over every single person sitting here. Drench them with grace, God. We thank you, Lord. You're so amazing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.